Luke chapter 8 is where we are this morning. We're in a series on the book of Luke. Um, We're in this section, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And each time we're looking at a passage in that section, I'm reminding us of the bigger story that those chapters fall within. Uh, At the beginning of that section, we have Jesus calling the 12 to be with him, And indeed, there were other disciples too, but these 12 that were particularly noted, called to be with him, share in relationship with him. And by the time we get to Luke chapter 9, then he's sending them out and calling them apostles, which means those who are sent out. And so chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 are the season in which Jesus does stuff with them that turns them from being disciples to apostles, those who come to him to those who are ready to be sent out by him. And I think that that's something that's on many of our hearts. We are following Jesus, but long to uh, be sent in his power into the world to participate with him in what he's doing. So these chapters have some special interest to us, and it's helpful for us to see what was it that Jesus did. We've looked at the way in which, as we've gone through these chapters, the way in which he constantly included new people in the community to what would have, to the point of consternation on the part of the others that were already in it, how he's shown them an example of miracles of healing, even raising the dead. This morning, as we get to Luke chapter 8, we have the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, we have uh, a story about the word, how the word of God works in this whole process. Because apostles are sent out not just to live a good life and demonstrate good deeds, but they're sent out with the word of God on their lips ready to share it with people and expect that word to bring transformation. And so Jesus talks about the word and not just what it is, but how it works. I'm going to speak for a slightly shorter length of time this morning than I normally do. And then I'm going to give everyone an exercise in spiritual devotion to do here before we go, just so you know where we're heading. Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering, and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, He told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. 
He was scattering the seed, and some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, rocky soil. And when it came up in that shallow soil, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. And this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns, it stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they don't mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Okay, familiar words to many of us. I need to say one or two things by way of introduction um, before getting on to the substance of these different soils and what happens with them. The first thing to note is that in these few verses, we get a tantalizing glimpse of the way Jesus' community was working a little bit more than we've seen before. And in particular, these verses go to some lengths to explain that Jesus' company of disciples, those who traveled around with him, included women. We have Mary of Magdalene. That's a place name, Magdalene. That's where she came from. Uh, It says here that she was delivered of seven demons. Church tradition has added a lot more colorful uh, information into the story of Mary of Magdalene, that she had been an immoral woman, that um, uh, she perhaps had been a prostitute. We don't know that. All it says of her is this incredible deliverance that she had experienced. One of a number of women who'd been healed of evil spirits or diseases. Uh, Together with Mary of Magdalene, there's Joanna, who uh, is mentioned elsewhere in uh, in the Gospels. Mary and Joanna were two of the women who found the empty tomb and who came with that testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. Susanna, who's mentioned here, we never hear about again. 
We don't know any more about her. Uh, It's tantalizing. It's like a little glimpse of something more going on in Jesus' community than we regularly see when there is normally this focus on the twelve. It would be possible to build up all kinds of ideas about what this community was really like and how it functioned. Um, But it's tantalizing in its vagueness. It tells us a couple of things very clearly, but leaves us probably wishing for more information. Clearly, women were part of the core community. They were traveling around with the 12. It's not that there were 12 and then 70 who are mentioned elsewhere. Oh, and then there's some women kind of on the fringes. Jesus had women together with him with the 12. This was different to other rabbis. Uh, Another thing that we read here is that these women were contributors. In particular, they were financial contributors. We know that other rabbis were happy to take money from women. We know that because Jesus rebukes Pharisees for taking widows' houses from them. Other teachers were happy to take money from women, but did not include them in their community In the same way, Jesus stands out for his inclusion of these women. Commentators on these few verses highlight one reason above others why these women are mentioned in particular. And it is that link with the resurrection narratives. Because the two women that are named first here are those two women who were there in the garden and saw the empty tomb. And in an age when women's voices were not listened to with great respect and where their witness may have been questioned, Luke is at pains to include them in the story as people who knew Jesus well. These were not random people who turned up in the Garden of Gethsemane, but Jesus' close companions and friends. And tantalizing as it is that we know this much about them and not much more, Um, that's about as much as we know. Uh, I was tempted this morning to go into a whole thing about gender and decided that I wouldn't do so on the basis of some unclear verses, and we'll save that for another day. I think I've said all that can be said from those few verses alone. And I'm going to move on to another thorny question, no pun intended, uh, that's here Because Jesus seems to be saying, uh, when he explains the fact that he's teaching in parables in verse 10, he says, I speak to others in parables so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. It sounds as if Jesus here is saying, I'm teaching in parables deliberately to be obscure. To underline the fact that some people get it and other people are destined not to get it. Some people have uh, sometimes described the parables as a means of Jesus sort of working out predestination. That there are some people who are never going to get it. So when Jesus speaks uh, in parables, those who are destined to get it have their eyes opened But marvelously, those who don't get it remain ignorant. 
But uh, Jesus isn't actually saying this here to highlight predestination. He's rather highlighting the fact that people have to engage personally in order to gain revelation. You cannot understand the meaning of the parables without entering in and asking questions. Jesus isn't trying to be obscure in order to keep people out. He's telling a story that invites people in. He says, let let those who have ears to hear, hear. He's inviting people, saying, come on in. Engage with this story and see what you can find in it. It's not that complicated when Jesus tells parables to understand what's going on. Jesus tells the parable of, say, a lost sheep. And says, the kingdom of God's like someone who searches diligently for a lost sheep and brings it back into the fold. It's not rocket science, is it, to see the application of that to people. It's not like it's an obscure uh, thing put together to make the truth impervious to the average person. It just requires a little bit of thinking and engagement, often engagement of the heart. Jesus is saying that there are some people who are content just to listen to the story and never really bother thinking it through and therefore never see the point. But there are others who take the trouble to dig below the surface and find out what's being revealed. And the meaning is then pretty clear. We're not helped by a difference between English and Greek languages at this point. In verse 10, it says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. And for us in English, a secret is something that you try to keep hidden. You try not to let anyone know. If someone says, can I tell you a secret? They mean, will you join with me in keeping this hidden? If I tell you, will you keep it to yourself? The Greek word that's here is the word mystery. And for us, that is another word that means something. The mystery is something you'll never get your head around. It's a complete mystery to me. I'll never understand it. The word mystery in Greek, as many of you will know, has a more specific meaning. A mystery is rightly understood as a truth that we could never discover for ourselves, but which has been revealed. That's what it means. It's not something that we could never know, and it's not something that God is trying to keep from us. It's just something that we need to be told before we'll understand it. Our science and our intelligence cannot work it out, but now that God has told it to us, then the mystery is made known. A secret in this sense, then, is not something that's intended to remain hidden and that someone might only find out if they're really lucky. But it's rather something that cannot be discovered by ourselves, and it is yet it is now known because it has been revealed. 
Jesus spoke in parables not to put barriers in people's way, not to make it harder for people to get hold of the truth, but in order to invite people in to engage personally and to discover for themselves through their reflection on the story all of its meaning. Okay, those are the two introductory things that I needed to say to cover this passage properly. We're going to go on to the parable proper. There are four outcomes for these seeds. The path, the rocky or shallow soil, the thorns, and the good soil. I want to just uh, look at this for a moment through that lens of disciples becoming apostles. Jesus tells this parable in that season of his ministry, wanting them to not only carry the word out, but to have some understanding of how this word works. So here's one thing that they would learn from this. As they hear Jesus speaking about a path and trampling and the devil who comes to steal the seed, first thing is, there is a spiritual battle. The process of sending out the word of God is not the same process that Domino's Pizza experience when they put their leaflets through all of our doors. There's not a spiritual battle over the selling of pizza. But there is a spiritual battle if we put a leaflet about Alpha through people's doors. There's not a spiritual battle if we explain to people just how amazing our favorite sports team is. They still might not agree with us, but there's not a spiritual battle over that. But when we explain what Jesus has done for us, there is. You know that moment that you you experience where You want to talk about Jesus, but somehow getting the name of Jesus on your lips is a little bit tricky. It's one thing to talk about my church life. It's another thing to talk about my God. It's a whole other thing to talk about my Jesus. That is a little moment in which we're feeling the spiritual battle. There's a contest going on around the sharing of the word of God. Jesus makes it clear to the disciples that that's how it works. He also says that faith is tested through suffering. That's what the shallow soil is about. Once the word has landed with someone, it's tested. It doesn't just grow without ongoing opposition. The suffering in particular, the the testing in particular is suffering. Um, I've been reading the book of Job, as you may know, uh, in my own personal Bible reading for quite a while. I've been reading it slowly because it's, it's not easily digestible. And I've been reading it for quite a while. When I came to it, uh, I came to it with the question of, uh, this is a book about suffering. And I'm going to learn more here about you know, how I can answer questions about suffering. Why do we suffer? Of course, that, that's not what the book says. What the book really does is change the question. 
and say to us, will we continue to worship God when we suffer? That's the real question. Job never really sees that for himself. But we know because we have this little prologue at the beginning where the accuser comes in and says, oh, let's just, God, could we see with Job whether he would curse you if he suffered instead of worshipping you? And God says, okay, let's see. And the question is, will Job give in? Will there come up, as the chapters go past and they keep talking and keep talking about their feelings about Job's suffering, will there come a moment when Job breaks down and goes, stuff it, and curses God to his face? Or will he continue to worship? In the end, he remains firm and his faith is proven. And here Jesus is saying, that's all going on here too. The people who receive the word of God will have their faith tested. There will be suffering. This is what being an apostle involves. Thirdly, this process of testing is ongoing for the disciples. That's what we can read in the story of the weeds. Those who start to grow up, who've germinated and uh, expanded and have got some strength about them, still face further challenge. Life's worries, riches, and pleasures can overgrow those seeds as they've developed. It reminds us that the battle is not resolved just at the outset, but this speaks more to those of us who are already following Jesus. We have to continue making good decisions if we want to live in the fullness of all the life that God has for us. It's interesting, isn't it, that as Jesus equips the disciples to go out for him, he doesn't give them, he doesn't give them like a pep talk that's all about, it's going to be great, it's going to be great, go on, it's going to be fine. Three quarters of what he has to say is, hmm, it's going to be a challenge, so there's going to be battle. At the very outset, there's going to be battle. Straight after people respond positively, there's going to be battle. Oh, and in an ongoing way, there's going to be battle. He prepares them for that, forewarned is forearmed, and they go out expecting a contest. This, of course, is the reason why uh, we often pull back from our own sharing of the word of God in our everyday lives. Connect a little bit with the busyness that we have. Because to go into battle day by day, week by week, takes some energy. And yet so often we're living lives that are so full, giving ourselves to so many things, that it's like we step onto the battlefield weary. And find that we're actually happy to hang back in the rearmost rows as our army enters into the conflict. Because we just haven't got the energy for it. I'll say something slightly more encouraging now. And it is 
that once we finish the parable, we're reminded that it's not all battle, that there is fruit. And it's amazing when it comes. One seed becomes a hundred seeds. Maturity is fruitful and it's incredible to behold. And so there are diverse outcomes. And I want to pause here a little bit and say this is a really big deal for us to get our heads around. You see, we tend to think of our planting of God's seed with other people a bit like this. This is a greenhouse full of orchids. Each flower, each plant has been carefully given its own space in a temperature-controlled environment, given its own level of moisture and nutrients. Probably the soil is a specific soil that helps that particular orchid grow well. Each one is nurtured into maturity one at a time and carefully. And that's how we naturally, it seems to me, think about our planting of God's word in the lives of the people whom we love. The word that we've got is precious. And the people whom we love are precious. And so we instinctively want to plant it carefully, ensure that it goes into good soil in any way that we can. Make sure that we never say anything that would disturb the process. And trust that through that an amazing crop is going to bloom. Whereas Jesus says that it's actually more like this. It's called a mission field for a reason. It's not a greenhouse. It's a field. Jesus says, some of what we sow is going to thrive. But there's a battle, and some of what we sow is not going to be fruitful. That, that's how it is. And it underlines for us that the power of God is not in our careful control of circumstances. The power of God is in the seed. The power of God is in his word. It's not because I can put it into just the right words, say it at just the right time, make sure I've never said anything that would be at all offensive as I've gone along, never scandalized anyone, always done the right thing, and then just maybe this word will germinate. The power is in the seed. And in God's commitment to see his word grow. In his commitment that there will be a harvest. So Jesus says it's, it's like sowing seed in a field. We can throw it out with confidence that there will be a harvest. But it doesn't necessarily come where we'd like it to at the time we'd want it to. And in quite the way that we want to. We don't get to control it that much. Uh, last week, I was with, uh, 10 days ago, with Dave Perry uh, for a few days. And one of the conversations that came up was this 
story that they experienced together with uh, John and Nom, who are now uh, in Paris. Incidentally, is where Stephen Lorraine Thomas are this week, um, with John and Nom in, in Paris, helping them to develop the church that they've planted there. But when John and Nom were living on Osney Island just here, and, and with Dave, it ran an alpha course. Um, well, actually, John and Nom had run a pub quiz in what's now the punter, and was the waterman's arms before that, ran a pub quiz there for years, got to know people in the community, eventually having nurtured that environment as a place where they were known and respected, and it seemed like a good soil now in which to sow the word of God, they arranged an alpha course. On the first night of the alpha course, three guests came, praise God. And then one of them, before the evening got going, had a heart attack and died. There and then. Well, got into an ambulance and died on the way. It's more accurate, isn't it, Dave? Dave was in the ambulance. It wasn't long before some other things then started to happen on Osney Island. There was a guy called Neil Anderson who lived directly across the road from John and Norm, who soon after all of this incident and the kind of confusion and trauma of it, just came and knocked on on the Bilson's door, John and Norm Bilson's door, and said, "Uh, I understand you're religious. Which was his way of opening up a conversation in which he wanted to know about Jesus. And he wandered across here and joined us on a Sunday morning. And whilst still not a Christian, just in our worship, no one prayed for him. But his leg was healed of a long-standing uh, pain. It just, God just, and he began to realize that, that God was on his case. God was touching him. And he got born again. He too died soon after that. And left it to John and Nom to clear his house just across the road from them. And I know that for them, that was their lesson in the fact that it's not about how carefully you control the environment. It's God who is Lord of the harvest. It's right for us to sow seed. It is right for us to sow seed. But there will be diverse outcomes, and yet God will bring about the harvest. Others of you have known this in your experience as well. It's like you sow over here and maybe there's some growth, but then having sown, God provides a harvest over here. There's just something in the way that God works that is like that. Yet some of us are carrying disappointments. Seeds that we planted that never led to new life. Even, I'll tell you what's worse than that. I mean, the seed that gets stolen off the path before it ever gets anywhere, that's disappointing. But the ones that really get you in your guts are the people that germinated. And then you're really excited. You're starting to tell the story of what God's done in their lives. And a couple of months later, they just, disappear, don't, they don't return your calls, they're not interested. 
or you know, they're overcome by some particular challenge and just can't see how their faith, newfound faith, makes sense of this new challenge that they have. And it's like the rocky soil or it's, it's like the thorns. Now, some of us are living with a disappointment. I can remember, it's often as not in your late teens and early 20s when you first experience that. And then that can stay with you all of your adult Christian life. An abiding sense that whilst we're supposed to believe the gospel is the, work, is the power of God for salvation, we know it doesn't quite work. God wants to set us free from that. Jesus told the parable of the sower to equip people to be confident sharers of his word. It wasn't just for academic interest. It was to deliver us from the disappointments to deliver us from the fear and set us free to share his word confidently, knowing that there will be a harvest even through much trial and contest. Amen? If we need to pray with you to help you get free of that kind of disappointment, for me, for me it was that I organized a, when I was in the sixth form in my school, I organized a week-long mission. We got a band in, we got people to come in and answer tricky questions. I did an assembly for the whole school, 1,200 kids in the school. I asked if I could do an assembly. I preached the gospel to everyone. Uh, yeah, thanks, Graham. Um, no one got born again. I heard three or four years later that some of the people I'd been at school with became Christians whilst they were at university. I don't know whether my sowing of seed contributed to that. I really don't know. Of course, I'd like to think that it did. But I entered my adult life with the trauma of a disappointment that I'd sown a load of seed and I couldn't see where it landed in good soil. I could see the path nice and clearly. And there are others who've had maybe not quite the same experience as me, but maybe it's even harder when it's one person that you love. That's, that can be even harder than a crowd of a thousand people. So, where are we? Oh, yes, this is what exercise. Here we go. I'm, I'm going to stop in just a moment because Jesus informs the disciples like how it all works, and that's all good. And I hope that there's been something in that that's landed for you this morning. But what we're going to do is uh, an exercise that many of you will have done, uh, which is a Lectio Divina. Does that, wave a hand if you've any idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's basically people who've been anywhere near our king's theological training in one incarnation or another. Good. Lectio Divina simply means divine reading. It's a pattern that helps us to engage deeply with the scriptures. It's a way of us meditating on the Bible so that we succeed in taking hold of it and putting it into our hearts. It's a reading of the Bible 
which isn't aiming to answer academic questions, but is aiming to get the word planted in us so that the life of Christ might be formed in us. And it goes like this, Lectio Divina. Um, It starts with a Bible text. You can choose one. Actually, I've got a suggested text for you, but on other occasions, I won't be there. And uh, you obviously have to start by choosing a text. Secondly, as you sit there with a text in front of you, just quieten yourself. Or even better, ask God to quieten you. Some people find it helpful to do one of those repeated um, rhythmic sorts of prayers uh, in this kind of quietening. Um, There are short prayers that you can pray, that you can pray with breathing in and breathing out. It could be a, a Lord as you breathe in, have mercy on me as you breathe out. Just slowing down from the rapid fire of our normal in, you know, thinking and life. Just slow down, quieten ourselves as a discipline to prepare ourselves to read God's word. And then similarly with the reading, to read it slowly. Not to rattle through, trying to find an interesting bit, but to take a chunk, read it slowly, then read it again, slowly. And perhaps read it again, slowly. And in that, asking what is it that captures our attention? What is it that is coming off the page and engaging me? And through that, what is it that God might be saying? What is it that the Holy Spirit is taking from the written word and working into me as I'm reading this. It's not complicated. It's deep. It's not complicated. And the next thing is to meditate. Chew it over. If you're reading something about, uh, you're reading through the Psalms and uh, The word stronghold, God is your stronghold, just starts to stand out to you a bit as you're reading. What what was the stronghold then? What what would it have felt like to be safe in a stronghold? What would it have been like for those outside the stronghold looking in? And either jealous of the security that it provides or frustrated by their inability to come in and bring harm. Uh, does it feel a constrained place to be? What, what, it, what is that all about? If God's highlighting that, chew it over. See what thoughts arise from it. Then pray. And in this context, it's not about bringing the Bible study to an end and now here's my list of things I need to pray about. But it's rather taking these thoughts the thoughts that have arisen from the text and turning them to prayer. It's as simple as saying, God, I don't think I like the idea of being in a stronghold. I've been thinking about it just now. I don't think I want to be in a stronghold. Or, God, I am desperate (laughs) for the security (laughs) of a stronghold, but I don't feel like I have it. Or whatever the honest reality is, I had um, 
some good advice given to me by a monk last year. I went on a retreat. You know the Catholic place on Boar's Hill, a Carmelite priory? I sat down with a monk for an hour and asked him to teach me a few things. And one of the things that he said was that in the Carmelite tradition, this is what, he said quite a lot of things. One phrase really landed with me in what he said. In their tradition of prayer, they place high value on opening our wounds before God. I thought that was a helpful phrase. Opening our, what we instinctively do is tell God about the kind of acceptable needs and how things are going great and maybe have a bit of a moan sometimes. But the vulnerability of saying, God, this, this, round, this is the vulnerable thing that's going on for me. If I'm really, this is what I'm feeling. I'm feeling like if you give me a stronghold, I don't want to be in it if you're there with me. Or, you know, whatever the, you know, when I've been looked after by other people in the past, there were some pretty poor outcomes, God. And I don't know that I want to be looked after by you. It's this pain. Whatever it may be, just to turn our thoughts into prayers and say, God, as I've read this, this is what I've thought, and I know you know it already, but because I know that you like me to talk to you, I'm offering you this in relationship with you. And then where that takes us finally is a place of rest. Having heard God's word, received it, talked to God about it, we can just say, wow. I've just had an encounter with the living God. That's what's just happened. He's here with me. He's spoken to me. He's put his word into me. I've told him how I feel about it. And he's still with me. And his word's gone further into me, even as I prayed to him. The goal of this Lectio Divina is not more understanding, but a closer engagement with God. Uh, the academic reading of scripture, where we look at the history and the grammar and the context and how the church has read it over the centuries, all of that matters. This is not a complete way of reading the Bible, but it's an important way of reading the Bible. You may have noticed, if you've been attentive to these things, that we missed the passage of Luke's gospel in jumping to the parable of the sower. We missed out Jesus anointed by a sinful woman at the end of Luke chapter 7. The reason is we're doing it next week, and Gordy is going to be speaking about that. And uh, they are, she's out with Eastside this morning, so we swapped things around to make sure that she had that passage to speak on. I'd like to suggest that would be a great passage for us now to do this in the time that we have left. By ourselves, to pray, read it slowly, see what God has to say to us. If you haven't got a Bible, I have got the passage printed out on a whole number of bits of paper, and you can come and grab one. And we're going to take the rest of the time that we've got this morning to take hold of a portion of God's word and stick it into our hearts, plant it deep, 
and trust that there's going to be a hundredfold fruit that comes from that.